Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 23. Genesis chapter 23, verses 1 through 20. Our passage for today. The title of our message is More Than a Grave. More Than a Grave. Genesis chapter 23. I'm going to read. This is God's Word. Follow along as I read from the Word of God. Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me, Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of its field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. And I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Heavenly Father, would you help us honor you in the way that we study your word. Help us to remember this is your very word and you seek to use this word in our lives to change us to bring us to salvation, and to help us work out that salvation in our lives so that we'll honor you, the God who has made us and the God who rescues us. In Jesus' name, amen. You probably didn't wake up this morning expecting to witness a death, observe the purchase of a cemetery plot, attend a funeral, but that's basically what we just did as we read chapter 23. Chapter 23 in Genesis tells us about the death of Abraham, excuse me, of Sarah, Abraham's purchase of a burial plot for Sarah, his wife, and then Sarah's burial. Now, on surface level, 
this passage can seem to be somewhat of a filler type passage, especially on the heels of Genesis chapter 22. If you're familiar with that chapter, if you were here last week when we looked at that chapter, that chapter is, is exciting. It's, it's, it's full of suspense. Um, it, it has an undeniably wow factor as Abraham raises the knife to slaughter his son and God uh, steps in through the angel of the Lord and stops him. I mean, that makes for a good story, right? I mean, that's exciting. You're waiting to see what's going to happen next, what's going to happen next, what's going to happen next. Compared to that, chapter 23 can appear to be a little gloomy and, let's be honest, a little boring. Compared to chapter 22. Probably not going to make a movie out of chapter 23. Maybe after out of chapter 22, probably not chapter 23. However, I hope we see today that this portion of God's Word holds important truths for us to learn and apply to our lives, helps us marvel at God's sovereignty, and ultimately points us to Jesus. I think one way we could summarize Genesis 23 is, is by saying this. God, church, God can take a grave and make it serve His agenda of life. God can take a grave and make it serve his agenda of life. I want us to pretend today that we're at the funeral of Sarah. Now, one of the things we would do if this was Sarah's funeral is we would spend some time reflecting back on her life. And that's what we're going to do in the first part of this funeral service, if you will. Sarah's death provides us an opportunity to learn from her life. But secondly, I don't want us just to look behind, look in the past, but I also want us to look ahead. Now, normally, we don't have the ability to see into the future when we're at a funeral. We don't know what's happening the next day or the next day or the next day. Because this burial happened many, many years ago, we have the ability to know what happens in the future when we're looking at it from the perspective of Sarah's burial. We know what is going to come, and so we can learn some things, not only by looking in the past at Sarah's life, but also by looking into the future. And Sarah's death provides us an opportunity to look ahead and celebrate what God was doing in that moment. Let's begin with an understanding of the flow of this passage, because it's easy just to kind of get lost in the back and forth um, in this transaction that takes place. Verse 1 tells us that Sarah lived, uh, lived a lot of years, 127 years. Verse 2 tells us that she died, and Abraham, her husband, mourned and wept for her. And then, that's just verses 1 and 2, then verses 3 through 18 a majority of this passage, it's telling us how Abraham negotiated with the Hittites to purchase land, a field that had a cave in it, as a burial site for his wife, Sarah. Then verse 19 tells us that Sarah was buried in that plot of land that Abraham bought. Verse 20 ends the chapter by repeating back to us the truth that we've already seen, the fact that we've already seen that this land belonged to Abraham. He owns this field in Machpelah at the end of chapter 23. That's the basic layout of the chapter. Again, doesn't sound super exciting, but it is, it is really neat to see what God is teaching us here in this passage of Scripture. I want to share with you two truths today regarding God's agenda of life, even in a scene of death. As we stand at Sarah's grave, let's first look back at her life. Church, when we look back and we spend a few minutes reflecting upon the life of Sarah, what we see is God's grace on display as Sarah, through barrenness 
and brokenness serves as an example of faith and godly beauty. She serves an example of faith and godly beauty. Truth, truth number one is this. By God's grace, imperfect people can leave behind an example of faith. By God's grace, imperfect people. And I'll go ahead and tell you, that's you and me and Sarah can leave behind an example of faith for others to follow. Most of you have been to funerals before. You know how it works. We try to remember all the good things about a person's life and just leave aside the bad things about the person's life. And that's probably a good thing to do in that setting. But today, I don't want us to do that. We're not going to overlook the bad parts about Sarah's life. We're not going to leave out the bad stuff. We're not going to do that today. And the reason is because the encouragement for us is found by taking an honest look at Sarah's life. We have to look at the bad along with the good. Now, Sarah has been one of the main people in the story of Genesis over the past several chapters. And much of what we've learned about Sarah has not been good. Just think back of, over what we've talked about with Sarah. It, it, it really hasn't been great. Some of the negative parts of Sarah's life were not her fault, but some of them were. Which, if you think about it, brothers and sisters, that's a lot like our lives. Some of the negative things in our lives are not our fault, and yet many of them are our fault. We're negatively impacted by the brokenness of creation that's outside of our control. We're negatively impacted by the brokenness of the people around us, which at the end of the day is outside of our control. We don't get to choose for other people the choices and decisions that they make. And we're negatively impacted by our own brokenness, by our own sin. Think about the negative impact that comes from the brokenness of creation. Our physical bodies experience brokenness through disorders and sickness and disease. And this isn't necessarily always the direct consequence of some wrong choice that we have done or something our parents did wrong. It's just a consequence of living in a world that is broken with sin. Creation is not what God originally designed it to be because sin has entered in this world and broken it. Things like genetic disorders or, or inherited diseases or allergies to foods, or in the case of Sarah, barrenness. Our first introduction to Sarah came at the end of chapter 11, and do you remember how she was introduced to us? Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. That's how, that's how this woman, who's being laid in the grave in this passage today, was introduced to us. As a woman who experienced the brokenness of living in a fallen world. We know from the rest of the story that she experienced that barrenness for 90 years until the age of 90. So for 70 plus years, she experienced life in a broken world with a body that wasn't doing what she hoped it would do. Only those who've walked through the trial of barrenness can understand the pain and the hurt and the discouragement and the disappointment. The inability to have a child can bring it into your life. And I want you to see Sarah is a real human being. She experienced the negative impact of life in a broken world. She also experienced the negative impact of the brokenness of the people around her. Her husband was not a perfect man. And we've seen that very clearly in these chapters in Genesis. She was not married 
to a perfect man. Sometimes he was a man of great faith and courage, but sometimes he was a big old coward. And he even put Sarah in some really bad situations. Remember Abraham told Sarah to tell people in the land that they moved to that she was his sister? You remember that? And we actually learned that he didn't tell her to do that one time. Like, that's, that was the plan as they traveled from place to place. You just tell people that you're my sister. Now, we've learned, we've learned that she was, in fact, his half-sister. But we also know that she was his whole wife. And that led to, in at least one instance, her being taken by another man to become his wife. Though, thankfully, no thanks to Abraham, but thankfully, because of God's gracious intervention, God protected her in that instance. On another occasion, when she was veering from God's plan, her husband, instead of being a loving leader and guiding her away from sin, he passively followed her into sin. Now, Sarah's sin, and we'll talk about this in a second, was ultimately her responsibility. But she also suffered from her husband's lack of courageous leadership in that instance. And then we can add to that her servant and her servant's son, Hagar and Ishmael. Remember, Ishmael is the son of Hagar and Sarah's wife, uh, uh, Sarah's husband, Abraham. And so those people in her life, they didn't make life easy for, for Sarah either. And now, again, Sarah was at fault in this. We'll talk about that. But, but we learned that after Hagar became pregnant with Ishmael, remember the text said she looked with contempt upon Sarah. She looked with, with, with displeasure perhaps with bitterness, perhaps even with hatred upon Sarah. So after Sarah then had her own son, she now witnessed the son of this woman who didn't like her mistreating her son. Remember, teenage Ishmael mistreating Sarah's little toddler, little three-year-old, and she had to endure that. Just think about all of those, those emotions and all of those negative experiences as she's impacted by the brokenness of the people around her. But added to the brokenness of creation, added to the brokenness of the people around her was Sarah's own brokenness, her own sin, her own sinful heart. She took matters into her own hands. Remember that? When, when she didn't think God's plan was working, she said, hey, I'll just do it. I got, I got a better plan. I'll just do it my way. She devised the plan for her husband to have a child with her servant, which, as we just saw, brought pain and heartache and regret into her life. Sarah lacked faith in God to the point, do you remember, that she laughs at God. She laughed when God said, you're going to have a son in your old age. She laughed. And then when God confronted her with her laughter, she lied and said, I didn't laugh. Sarah, Sarah experienced brokenness, not just from creation, not just from those around her, but her own brokenness, her own sin. She knew the feeling of guilt before the holy God. Perhaps you identify with Sarah's imperfections. I know I do. I know I identify with Sarah's imperfections. Perhaps you know the feelings of abandonment, bitterness, confusion, doubt, grief, heartache, regret, and ultimately the burden of your own guilt from your own sin before the holy God. Friend, I want you to know that despite Sarah's imperfections, and they were many, she left a legacy of faith, which at the end of the day highlights God's grace in her life, God's grace toward sinners. 
And the same can be true for us. By God's grace, imperfect people can leave behind an example of faith for others to follow. I want us to take a minute and jump into the New Testament and see how the New Testament remembers Sarah. Did she leave an example for Christians to follow? How did the apostles in the early church view Sarah? What kind of legacy did she leave? Did she just kind of fade off the pages of Scripture as someone who, we don't really want to be like Sarah? Well, there are two specific places in the New Testament where Sarah is highlighted as an example for Christians. And here's the good news. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. By God's grace, those are examples in the New Testament where she is held up as an example to follow. There's there's sometimes examples are given in Scripture where we're not to follow those examples. But actually, when Sarah is mentioned in the New Testament, she is held up as an example for us to follow. The first example is a passage is really for all Christians, and the second is primarily for Christian women to follow. First, we see that Sarah is remembered for having faith in God's faithfulness to his promises. Sarah is remembered as, as, as a woman who, at the end of the day, she believed that God was a God who kept his word. Now, it took her a while to get there, but she is remembered as a woman who had faith in God's faithfulness to keep his promises. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. If you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, you know we get to chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and God gives us this list of people who, who exemplified lives of faith. Now, ultimately, it's to draw our attention to Jesus, but these individuals are held up as people who we could say, hey, I want to be like that. I want to live a life of faith like that. Sometimes it's called the hall of faith, uh, if you will. You know who's included in that? Despite all of her imperfections, Sarah. And not just simply as the husband of Abraham, but Sarah. She is specifically mentioned as someone who we could look up to as living a life of faith. Hebrews 11, verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Don't you notice that phrase? Since she had considered him faithful. Faithful, that's talking about God, him faithful who had promised. Despite initially laughing at God's promise to give her a son in her old age, amazingly, Sarah is remembered for having faith that God would do what he said he would do. Apparently, at some point along the way, Sarah's skepticism at what God said was going to happen turned into full confidence that what God said was going to happen. God walked with her through those doubts and he held her close and he didn't let go of her even though she was really walking away from him. And by God's grace, she's held up as this example of faith for us to follow. Church, that is the grace of God. That is, that only way you can explain that is the grace of God on display in the life of Sarah. It's evidence that imperfect people, by God's grace, can leave behind an example of faith And that's an encouragement for me, and I hope it is for you. So we see Abraham leave behind this example of faith through her faith in God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises. But we also see in the New Testament that Sarah leaves behind an example of faith, faith in God's perspective of female beauty. Faith in God's perspective of female beauty. Beauty. The other place we see Sarah mentioned in the New Testament as an example for us to follow is in First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three. And there Peter holds Sarah up as an example, primarily for women to follow, but there's something for men to learn as well. I want to read to you First Peter chapter three, verses one through six. 
I want you to listen to what godly beauty is in a woman. What God thinks is beautiful. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And then notice what Peter says. For this is how the holy women who hope in God used to adorn themselves. That is how they used to make themselves beautiful. By submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now obviously we could, we could have a whole sermon on that passage of scripture. We're not going to do that. But let's summarize it. Let's look at it. Big picture perspective. Did you catch God's perspective on true female beauty in that passage of Scripture? Women, in God's view, in God's view, it is not your outward appearance that makes you beautiful, but a heart that is set on honoring God and behavior that is in keeping with godliness. Which means God is far more pleased with a woman who prepares for the day by sitting in front of an open Bible or on her knees in prayer than he is by one who spends her whole morning routine looking in a mirror. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get the scripture wrong. This doesn't mean it's wrong to look nice. You should probably brush your hair before you go out for the day, okay? But God's not telling us not to brush our hair in the morning, okay? That's not, that's not what he's saying. But he is very clearly saying that fancy hair and clothes and jewelry do nothing to make you beautiful in God's eyes. Why? Because God is looking at your heart and he's looking at the conduct that flows from your heart. And then there's an application for us here as well. The women in our lives should be able to see that we value true female beauty as God values true female beauty this doesn't mean that if you're married or you have a mama or have daughters that you don't tell them that they look beautiful that doesn't mean you don't say that I think you should say that every chance you get but the women around us should see that what we really value are the characteristics of godliness in a woman Why? Because that's what God values. The world desperately needs to see not just women value his view of true female beauty, but the world needs to see men value God's perspective on true female beauty. Now, God has surrounded me with outwardly beautiful women. Here's what I mean by that. I have a beautiful wife. I have a beautiful mom. I have beautiful sisters and I have beautiful daughters. God in his sovereignty thought it was good for me just to be surrounded by a bunch of a bunch of women in my life. And I think they are beautiful in their outward appearance. I, I do. All of them. But far greater than their outward beauty, my wife, my mom, my sisters display the inward beauty of godliness. By his grace, they display that inward beauty of godliness. And a lot of you know them, and you're shaking your heads right now. You know that. 
And I pray that God uses me to help grow that same kind of beauty in my daughters as they see me value godliness more than physical attractiveness. Sarah serves as an example of, of this true female beauty, but it comes, with, it, it comes with faith because the world doesn't tell us that. The world is not telling us that. But this passage says that she hoped in God. That's what Peter said. Her faith was in the Lord, which means she was then able to see things from his perspective. Sarah is described as a holy woman who hoped in God by adorning herself with inward godliness rather than outward attractiveness through a gentle and quiet spirit, submission to her husband, good behavior and fearlessness. Fearlessness. That passage ends by saying if if you're not afraid of things that are That should make you afraid. What's that talking about? Well, I think in other words, it means that you're trusting God with the future. You're not living in fear because your hope is in God. You know, he has tomorrow. He holds the future in his hands. And so you walk into the future. You walk into the next day, not not arrogantly confident, but just with this confident hope that God has this. He has this. He has this. Were Sarah's circumstances in her life perfect? Nope. Were the people in Sarah's life perfect? Nope. Was Sarah a perfect woman? No. But through her faith, God graciously overlooked her sins until the time when Jesus paid the price for her sin through his death on the cross. And by God's grace, Sarah serves as an example of faith in God's faithfulness and faith in God's perspective of beauty. And brothers and sisters, the same is true of us. By God's grace, imperfect people like you and me can leave behind an example of faith. But friends, the only way we receive this grace of God in our lives is if we believe in Jesus. If we place our faith in the promises that are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we trust in his death on the cross in our place to rescue us from our sin. His resurrection from the grave to give us power and victory over death. So I, I really think, even as we consider Sarah's life, that we're drawn to ask this question, have we believed in Christ for salvation? Are we trusting the promises of God? Is our hope in Christ and in Christ alone? And if yours is not, I plead with you to trust in Christ for salvation. Believe in Him. And then watch as God uses your life to set an example of faith for those who come behind you. Now, I said that there were two truths for us to learn today as we stand at Sarah's grave. And the first we see by looking back, by turning around and looking back at Sarah's life. But the second, we want to turn back around and we want to look ahead. We want to look into the future. And Sarah's actual grave, like the actual grave there where her body was laid, helps us look into the future. Truth number two, church, is this. God works through the seemingly mundane, to accomplish his magnificent plan. God works through the seemingly mundane, through the the things that seem just like everyday routine. You just do them without thinking about them, and maybe you get tired of doing them. He works even through those things to bring about, to accomplish his magnificent plan. Almost this whole chapter, you're probably thinking, goodness, we haven't really looked at hardly any of the verses here in this chapter. Well, most of this chapter has to do with Abraham purchasing a piece of land to serve as Sarah's grave, as her burial plot. Remember, Abraham and Sarah have lived in this land for many years, but they don't own any land. They are sojourners. They are wanderers. They are exiles. They go from place to place. They don't own any land. So when Sarah dies, Abraham needs somewhere to bury her. 
But he doesn't want to borrow a grave. He wants to purchase a grave. Chapter 23 gives a detailed view of the negotiations Abraham went through to get this burial plot for his wife, Sarah. Abraham first tells the Hittites who own the land that he wants to purchase a plot. He goes to the city, he goes to the city gate. That's where the transactions would have taken place, kind of like courthouse today. And he went there and he said, hey, I, I want to I buy some land to bury my wife. And they respond by offering to let Abraham bury his wife in the choicest of their tombs. They say, listen, you are like a prince among us. You bury your wife in the best tomb that you can find. But Abraham knows that that's not what he was asking. That's more like a loan. He wants to buy a piece of land. They didn't offer to sell him. They said, just, just bury her where you want to bury her. So he, he comes back. He counter-offers. He names the specific plot he wants. He's scoped it out. He knows what he wants. He, the, the cave of Machpelah. He names the owner, Ephron, the son of Zohar. And he says, I will purchase it at full price. Now, Ephron responds with an everyday negotiation tactic for that time and culture. He basically says, you know what? I'll just give you the land. You don't have to buy it. To which Abraham responds in verse 13 with, I'll pay you what it's worth. I'll pay you whatever the land is worth. To which Ephron responds with this. You've got to read between the lines that he would see what he's saying here. He says, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Go bury your dead. Abraham knows what he's saying. He's not actually now giving the land. He's just gave the price. He's saying, oh, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, right? You see what he's saying? What is that between me and you? And so Abraham knows the process. He knows what's going on. It's his nice way of, Ephraim's nice way of saying, pay me 400 shekels of silver and you can have it. So in the presence of witnesses, they make a, they, they, they perform a buy and sell transaction. Abraham pays the money. Ephraim deeds over the land to Abraham. Witnesses are there to see it. This is a legal transaction. Everybody knows now Abraham owns this plot of land. And really, this land transaction is the main point of chapter 23. Twice in the final verses of the chapter, we see the phrase that the land was, quote, made over to Abraham as a possession, made over to Abraham as a property. Even the final verse is not Sarah's burial. That's the next to the last verse. After Sarah buries, uh, buries uh, excuse me, Abraham buries Sarah, the text comes back again, as we didn't already know this, and reminds us, this land belongs to Abraham. He owns it. Step back for a minute. Why is such attention given to what is really just an everyday transaction? The buying and selling of land is just a normal part of life. You just, you do it, okay? It, it happens doesn't normally make the news. You don't write books about it. You don't sit down and read a story about somebody's negotiation for the purchase of a cemetery plot. Not, people, not many people find that a very exciting to read about. So it might seem odd that a whole chapter is devoted to the purchase of a burial plot for Sarah. And yet, though God is not mentioned specifically in this chapter, and though it doesn't seem very exciting, God is very much at work, church, because God is working through the seemingly mundane to bring about his magnificent plan. 
And to see this, we have to remember, as we've said over and over, we have to remember the promises of God, which are driving the storyline of Abraham's life, driving the storyline of the book of Genesis, driving the storyline of the entire Bible. God promised Abraham a land and descendants and to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham and his descendants. At least six times since we were introduced to Abraham back in chapter 12, God has promised Abraham a land. And church, chapter 23 is God making a down payment on that promise. For years, Abraham has been a wanderer, a sojourner. But through the death of Sarah, he becomes a landowner in the promised land. He owns this burial plot. Now, it's going to be about 400 years before Abraham's descendants take possession of this promised land. But this purchase is a foretaste. Of what is coming. God is going to make good on his promise to give Abraham's descendants this entire land. And he shows that by now giving uh, Abraham ownership to this small piece of that promised land. God is going to make good on his promise to make Abraham into a great nation. God is going to make good on his promise to to make Abraham the father of many nations. God's going to make good on his promise to bless all the families of the earth through this one man, Abraham, and his descendants. And God is going to bless the world, making good on that promise by sending a promised deliverer, Jesus, descended from the line of Abraham and Isaac, Born in this land that will be handed over to this people and this Jesus raised up to die for your sin, to die for my sin, to rise up from the grave. God is working out this magnificent plan, even here in chapter 23, through the seemingly mundane task of purchasing a burial plot. Friends, God is still working out his magnificent plan of filling the new heavens and the new earth with the blood-bought worshipers of him. Sometimes it's in the big, extraordinary events of life, like chapter 22, where we see God at work. But church family, oftentimes it's in the seemingly routine and mundane tasks of life where God is very much at work accomplishing His magnificent plan. Our lives are filled with mundane tasks, but God uses those mundane, routine, everyday tasks for His glorious plan. Like the teacher who teaches day in and day out, performing the seemingly mundane, but all the while setting a godly example for those children that will produce fruit in years to come for the glory of God. Like parents caring for their children, performing all the seemingly mundane and routine tasks, changing diapers and washing dishes and and getting back up in the middle of the night for the third time to cover up the child who keeps pushing the cover off of her or off of him. Those just routine things that can get just seem commonplace. And sometimes it's the mundane things that we complain about. And yet in the midst of that, those parents are leading those children to Jesus. Even in the way that they do those mundane tasks, because they don't complain, but they do it for the honor and glory of God. Like the church member keeping the nursery or changing light bulbs or setting up tables and chairs, performing the seemingly mundane. But all of that goes into having and building a healthy church that is the beacon of gospel light 
for a community so that people can hear about Jesus and come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Even through the seemingly mundane, God is accomplishing his magnificent plan. Brothers and sisters, we should do the everyday task of life with the expectation that God is using them to bring about his glorious plans. So we stood at Sarah's grave. We've looked back. We've looked ahead. As we look back, we saw God's Grace on display as Sarah through barrenness and brokenness serves as an example of faith in God's promises and faith in God's perspective on what true beauty is. And as we look forward, we we see that God's work through the seemingly mundane accomplishes his magnificent plan. And church family, through it all, I pray that we've seen that God can take a grave and make it serve his agenda of life. The life that comes when when faith in God defines us, not our sin or the brokenness that's around us. The life that comes when we get to be a part of God's magnificent plan for this world that he has made. In church, all of this is possible. The grave serving God's agenda of life is possible because of another grave. Not Sarah's grave, but the grave of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grave of Jesus, that promised deliverer who rose up from the dead by his own power, conquering death with life. You see, because of Jesus, Sarah is going to rise up from her grave one day to experience everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, because of Jesus, we who have believed in Christ will rise from the grave one day to experience everlasting life. Because of Jesus, whether we're standing at Sarah's grave or we're laying in our own grave, we can know, we can say, there's life here. There's life here. Because of Jesus, this is more than a grave. This is more than a grave. It's just a part of God's magnificent plan. Salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for being able to take the mess of our lives, whether it's the brokenness that comes from creation and being born in a broken world, whether it's the brokenness from people around us that, that impact negatively our lives, or Lord, whether it's our own brokenness, which we all have. Lord, we're all guilty of sin. Lord, thank you that you're able to redeem us from that and you're able to to help us by your grace live a life of faith that can even be remembered by those who come after us as an example to follow. God, we thank you that you are doing, you're doing far more than meets the eye all the time, all around us, even through the everyday things of life. So God, would you help us to, to see you at work to do these things for your honor and your glory. Lord, thank you for life. We know it's only through Jesus Christ. So help us to live in desperate dependence upon Him. Help us to live in great celebration of Him. Our Savior, our King, Jesus. Father, it's in His name that we pray. Amen.